Quisque suscipit diem. My fake Latin needs a lot of work. There's a bunch of placeholder crap. All right. Just received the email with Austin's pick for me from Jason. We're going to open it up right now and see what we're going to be listening to. Boards of Canada, music has the right to children. Uh, this immediately requires that I explain about myself that I am terrible about remembering names. Yusef Cat Stevens, a T for the Tillerman, 1970. Wow. Okay, that's out of uh, that's out of the blue. I uh, you know I, I'm, I'm familiar with the man's hits and things, but I don't believe I've ever actually listened to a entire Cat Stevens album. So this should be interesting. As soon as I hit play, I'm almost certainly going to go, ah, yeah, of course, I've heard this. In my mind, I have them filed away in a kind of similar category as, as uh, Daft Punk. I always enjoy these kind of uh, stoking the fires of my memory to awaken things that had long been dormant. I'm going to hit play and dive in now, and then I suppose we're going to talk about it. Welcome to Crossfade, the dueling album review show about expanding your musical horizons. I'm your host, Matt Helgeson, joined by my co-host and producer, Jason Daphnis. Hi, Matt. Uh, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm very good. How are you? Uh, you know, 10 kills on the board right now. Just wiped out Tomato Town. Feeling, feeling all right. Oh, don't. <laughs> don't, don't start that. Um, that's in my... Uh, well, let's, let's bring it back to something more positive. We are super excited. We have a, a great guest uh, this week, and we've, we've been trying to work this out for a while, and we finally did. Uh, please welcome to the show Austin Wintry, uh, a very well-known video game and film composer. Welcome, Austin. Well, hello. I guess I don't need to ask how you guys are doing because you you kind of you kind of kicked that <laughs> off it up for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, if you play video games, you you definitely probably uh, familiar with Austin's work. Um, he's done uh, kind of came out with uh, Flow, which is a really kind of innovative and cool game with Genova Chen. Uh, done things like Journey, Assassin's Creed Syndicate, Monaco, Abzu, Banner Saga, a bunch of stuff. Um, so just. Kind of to give people the the cliff notes of it. How did you kind of get on this path of of being a, a composer? And obviously, I'm sure it, as a child, music was important to you. Um. So funny enough, until about ten, music was not really a part of my life at all. Which is that's gonna Weird. that's gonna come up. I know it, it is. It's 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 very unusual amongst my, you know, friends and colleagues who do a similar thing where. Very often they, you know, their earliest memories, you know, they don't, they, they have memories at, you know, a piano or holding a guitar or a violin or something that predate being able to speak, you know, that, those kinds of households. I, I really had fundamentally not that upbringing at all. And it, it, this will kind of dovetail later on when we, when we talk about our albums, because it's kind of related to that in a way. Um, but yeah, I, so around 10, I, was uh, had the very kind of weird circumstance of a of a very open-minded piano teacher and I was starting piano a little bit on a whim there's a whole story I don't need to drag you through but it was a very odd circumstance to say the least and and the teacher of mine said you know what do you want to learn what you know you want to learn like the songs on the radio you want to learn classical music you want to learn jazz he was himself primarily a jazz musician but he really could play anything and um, he was one of those guys who would, you know, play a wedding reception where you could just walk up to him and say, hey, do you know? And you could say basically anything ever and he could do it. You know, he just had tens of thousands of pieces of music 
uh, on file at, at any given time because he's, you know, an entertainer. He's a kind of a working pianist. And so I said, I honestly don't know what I want to learn because I don't really listen to music. This is, this is all very foreign to me. I loved, I loved uh, film, video games. I was convinced I was going to be a novelist. You know, even at age 10, I thought, oh, I want to tell stories. Wow. Uh, and so I, 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 I liked that about those things. They all had that in common, you know, film and TV and comics and, and novels. And, and they all, they all storytelling was, it was the kind of the thing that they all seemed to have in common. I, I didn't know that. That was one of those later kind of analyzing my preferences as a kid realized that they all had in common at the time. It was just, Oh, I like these things. And so when I told him, I don't really know what I want to learn because I don't really know what my options are. And I mean, quite literally, it was like, I think I've heard of, you know, Beethoven from school. I was just completely clueless. And he showed up with a stack of vinyls the next week of the film scores of Jerry Goldsmith Hmm. And it was one of those radical lightning bolt kind of transformations where I, I had the simultaneous epiphany that number one, people earned a living in music in a way that I had never even intuited or thought about. And on top of that, they got to in that medium, write some truly imaginative and experimental and bold and beautiful and, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, endless eternal adjectives, music. In other words, there was no real limitation. It wasn't like, oh, well, you know, this is music that's got to fit some very specific criteria. It was like anything you can imagine uh, was justified to exist for some film or some something. And I just found myself so captivated by that. Of course, my musical horizons expanded a lot once I kind of caught the bug and, and found myself obsessing over music 24 hours a day, but it took that catalyzing event uh, and, and discovery. And very specifically, it was Jerry Goldsmith who uh, after, after uh, uh, you know, learning the, the kind of catalog of different composers who've contributed to film in particular, but obviously TV, uh, video games, et cetera, et cetera. He's still my, my reigning champion of there's just never been anybody better. Uh, he, he, he's a one of a kind, probably never will be another either. Um, so yeah, I could easily spend the whole rest of this just talking about Jerry Goldsmith. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I have a question that kind of dovetails with your, your pick for your album. Um, I was listening to some of your music, you know, last couple of weeks here. Um, and it, it kind of struck me a, because your pick, I don't know what I thought you would pick being a composer. I don't know, but it, I think if you would have given me a thousand guesses, I probably wouldn't have guessed. Cat. Uh, <laughs> I mean, seriously, Cat Stevens. I just, I don't know why, but I just, it, it just, when I got that, I was like, wow. I thought that surprises I, me. I, I'll tell you. I don't. I don't mean to cut you off your your question, mm-hmm. but I'll just say this was not an easy thing to pick. Um, and there's a whole. We'll get into it. We'll get into why and all that. But um, as soon as I finally landed on what I wanted to share, I realized. No one in a million years would probably guess that this is <laughs> what I would pull out of the hat, except for maybe my mother. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. I Anyway, continue, though. What were you going to ask? Yeah. Um, but, you know, back to your, your work. And so I was listening to it. And it generally, I guess my perception of film and, and video game and television composers is, is um, I don't want to say all of them, but many of them, I think, 
at least in my perception, sort of they cultivate a style, right? That there's just sort of a signature sound, whether that's, you know, Hans Zimmer or, uh, you know, Ennio Morricone or, um, you know, Jesper Kidd. And I just think it's it's, it's a natural thing because then, then a, a game director or a film director would be like, you know, we this would really work well with like a Hans Zimmer kind of thing, right? You know, whereas I was listening to your stuff and, you know, like flow and journey are, are very more minimal and sometimes almost ambient. I was listening to Assassin's Creed Syndicate, Monaco, and they were just all very different in feel to me. I mean, I'm not saying there weren't any commonalities to it, but um, I guess I'm curious, um, is that a, a conscious choice? Do you, or do you, is it sort of a thing where you let the, the, the movie or the game or whatever the project is sort of dictate that, that feel and that style? It's um, a bit of both part. So, what you're latching onto hits the nail on the head of what inspired my obsession with Goldsmith because he was incredibly prolific. I mean, hundreds of feature films. So we're talking about probably thousands of hours worth of music that he wrote. Um, and he scored, I, I think, multiple thousands of episodes of television um, over the course of his life particularly in the first half of his career. Um, and when you just spot check through random excerpts of his catalog, you have, it always feels like, how is this all the same guy? It's so all over the place. And remember when I was, you know, those first few years of really falling in love, there was this thrill of, wow, he can do that too. You know, listen, like someone brought up yesterday or, Today, I think today, uh, my sense of time is always completely destroyed. If I if I wrote a tweet in the morning, it may as well have been a year ago. Um, this today, I think, is um, the 86th, I believe, birthday of the legendary studio bassist Carol Kay, who played oh, yeah, like a absolutely. billion. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. You, I know who I, I'm with the right crowd here. So <laughs> yeah, no, I, I play bass and Jason does too. And she's, you know, she she's was the legend. Yeah. The God, the wrecking crew, you know, 60s, anything in the LA in the 60s, she basically played on. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. And so someone, I, I wrote a tweet saying happy birthday, you know, to, to the, to the goddess. And, um, um, somebody brought up her, base contributions to Jerry Goldsmith's score to escape from planet of the apes. And, and it was funny because I, I wasn't, that wasn't in my mind at all, but I could, I could hear it as soon as I read the tweet. Cause I, I know that score. And it's funny because there were a bunch of planet of the apes movies back in the sixties and seventies. And Jerry did the original one in 68, which is like this very modern, modern by those days by, you know, late sixties standards, music, orchestral music, very, we might call it today avant-garde. It's not really quite the right term, but it's very atonal, you know, very, um, uh, uh, you know, expressionistic is another term we might use. It's it's it has no traditional uh, romantic style, uh, big melodies. You know, the it's it's very percussive, very just aggressive and and kind of dissonant and violent. And then in contrast to that, there's a full-blown 70s vibe to Escape from Planet of the Apes that, of course, then heavily features Carol. And even just so, even just within that franchise, you hear two radically different expressions uh, from the same composer. 
And I, I just always marveled at his ability to kind of reinvent seemingly every time he put pen to paper. Um, and then, but what I really fell in love with is as I got deeper and deeper and deeper and, you know, what was an obsession for three years became an obsession for 10 years, I started to realize I can actually always tell instantly that it's him and that his ability to come up with a whole new bag of tricks is very different from who his identity is and who his sort of soul as a composer is below that. The, the analogy that I've, that I've come to use because it's hard to explain this. I mean, you're both musicians, so you, I'm sure you get it. But I guess for the benefit of any future listener, the the way that I like to explain it is Jerry had a vast wardrobe and could put on wildly different styles of clothes. But the man hmm. below those never oh, okay. stopped being that man. Huh. Okay, so you, you can always detect a certain like core to his his work that that sort of transcends the stylistic differences yeah you can feel there are rhythmic instincts there are harmonic instincts there are melodic instincts certain intervals chord voicings it's little things that show up and they manifest in different ways in different contexts he also had just broad philosophies so all of that became my obsession and i thought that's that's like my hero image you know that's that is what i aspire to i love that his musicianship was so and so kind of well formed that he could jump around to any aesthetic or genre that you could possibly name. And he even invented a few in the process, you know, score like uh, basic instinct, the Paul Verhoeven thriller. He, he, he essentially invented a new way of scoring thrillers with that score. And he did things like that fairly regularly. He had his own take on Westerns, for example, very big in the sixties and seventies. That genre was such a huge part of, cinema like superhero films today and there were kind of two types of westerns there was the copeland uh elmer bernstein you know magnificent seven right. kind of thing and then there was the morricone the so-called spaghetti western which was a very sort of subversive take and jerry had it really his own that borrowed a little bit from both and sometimes he leaned heavily one direction to the other but his westerns really don't sound the same as as either of those and um and so it, it, it just to me that 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 soul that you can hear, I thought, you know, that's, I don't know if I'll ever be one one thousandth the composer that he was, um, but just that ability to feel so free moving from one genre to another with wildly different instrumental palettes and, and, um, you know, like the, the kind of the construction kit that goes into different types, he could, he could onboard that stuff without getting lost in it. You know, like if somebody says, I want you to make something that sounds like authentic mid seventies disco. And, and so you start fussing around with it. Well, really quickly, if your goal is to just be purely authentic, you're going to just latch onto one of a few particular pieces and probably just knock it off. And all of what makes you, you as a composer disappears in that process. And that never happened with Jerry. It's like, he could be doing disco. He could be doing modernist or, you know, aggressively uh, mid 20th century style concert music, orchestral music. He could be doing lush romantic, you know, score like Papillon, which has this opening title. That's as, as gorgeous and beautiful and lyrical as anything you could imagine. Or, you know, Star Trek, the motion picture where he, he just goes full blooded sci-fi, you know, romantic orchestra or in that same year, Ridley Scott's alien, which is, you know, pure sci-fi horror. Oh, wow. He, he, I didn't he know could, he did that. 
Oh yeah, he moved. He you know he, he did also the, the all three of the Rambo films in the eighties around that same time, and and you know Poltergeist <laughs> with Spielberg, uh, and so it's like he, as he moves around from all these different things, um, he he would you would you would hear the Jerry even within certain things that are supposed to kind of thread the needle of a very specific genre. He just had this gift, so I thought, man. That's the target I want to set. It's a, it's near impossible, but that's the goal. So, um, that's awesome. Yeah, not repeating myself is fundamentally uh, at the forefront of my mind when I sit down. You know, if, if someone presents a project and there's certain things about it in common with a previous one, I have to consciously say, okay, all the, all the, all the solutions that I came up with on that last one, I'm not giving myself permission to use this time. Um, but past that, oh, wow. That's the conscious part. The unconscious part is just kind of, well, whatever comes out is, I guess, whatever comes out. Right. That's awesome. And like I said, I, re- I really enjoyed, um, you know, I was, I was listening to a bunch of stuff, you know, just kind of randomly on streaming. And I encourage everyone to check out, you know, I thought Flow is on Bandcamp, I believe, you know, a, a Syndicate, Monaco. I, th- I really loved Abzu. So it was, it was Thanks, really man. enjoyable and, and I loved the, the range of it. Um, let's bring it around Appreciate to that. your pick. Um, I just want to just kind of a bit of housekeeping. Uh, in terms of uh, the artist's name, Cat uh, Stevens was actually born, I believe, Stephen Gorgio. He's Greek, I believe. And uh, then he went by Cat Stevens. He converted to Islam, became Yusef Islam, then just Yusef. Now he seems to sort of re-embrace Cat Stevens, and I think he kind of goes by Yusef Cat Stevens. Um, so I don't know. We might drift around how we um, <laughs> you know, refer to him, but he's he's gone by a lot of different things uh, over the years. And uh, But... Uh, over to your pick uh, again. I said I, I was surprised. Um, this actually is an album for all. I mean, I've listened to so much like the kind of seventies and sixties classic rock stuff. This is not an album that I was super familiar with. Actually, I do. I, I buy a lot of records, and I definitely associate this with like a used record store staple. Like, <laughs> I, I think every used record store in the world has tea for the Tillerman because it, it sold <laughs> in like large quantities back in those days mm-hmm. um, when records sold in very large quantities. Um, but just, I guess, why did you pick it? What, what's your relationship to this album? So, I guess it probably, given everything I just said, particularly about Goldsmith, but just as like a general philosophy about music and that 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 longing for sort of diversity and and um, eclecticism, I rarely listen to one album a lot. I tend to move around constantly. So the way something about the way that you guys frame the question of like, you know, what's one, I think you said specifically non soundtrack album. Um, but e- even if you had said that, what's just one album that, that you've listened to a million times, uh, something along those lines is I, if I remember correctly, how you framed it And that specific framing is what I made me go. Is there even one album that I have just ground to dust? Because I've always, I've been like this, you know, greedy kid at the buffet who's like, I (laughs) want some of this. Oh, I want some of that. I want some of this. And I've always (laughs) moved around a lot. And I'll have periods where I listen to nothing but jazz. And then I'll have periods where I listen to nothing but, you know, uh, crazy, you know, way off the beaten path, electronic, like noise music and, and, you know, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, through, through everything. And I'm all, and plus on top of that, you know, I have a lot of friends and colleagues who make music for a living. And of course, I'm always eager to hear what they're up to. So I'm constantly listening to the latest album drop of so-and-so or the latest soundtrack album from so-and-so. And so it's just, 
the the diet, my listening diet is extremely random, I guess, above all. Yeah. And no, so I was I, like, I, I'm, sorry, go ahead. No, I'm the same. I'm the same way, especially I, I think Spotify has made that even like more so. Yeah. You know, for sure. And, and so, so I found myself thinking, is there one thing that I really listen to, especially younger? And I realized, you know, when people ask like what you did a minute ago about, you know, kind of what my upbringing was like and, 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 and there's often an assumption of growing up in a kind of musical household, like parents who play instruments or sing or in, are in bands or orchestras themselves and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I didn't have one of those households, but the one kind of exception was that, you know, my dad, he's not around anymore, but he uh, was growing up in the, like he was, you know, a teenager in the sixties and, um, and then in college and whatnot in the seventies. And so as you can imagine, through up till his dying day, that era of music held a very strong place in his life and his identity and Cat Stevens uh, and, and this al- album in particular was one of those that just held a soft spot for him. And it's also what he wasn't really a musician. His mother was, which is if, if we assume music is genetic to some degree, then it, it definitely came through his side. But really skipping over him, I guess, because he never really made anything of himself musically. He was a surgeon, um, orthopedic specialist, uh, but he could, you know, strum some folk songs with convinc you know, convincing, uh, uh, gusto on guitar. And, <laughs> but honestly, the only thing I ever have any memory of him ever playing was Cat Stevens. And we're talking about a couple of childhood memories scattered around, but he was a really big part of my life. You know, he died at 64. Um, not even, he was just shy of his 64th birthday. And so my, you know, my connection to him growing up was, was very strong. And, and he's kind of one of those people who he cast a long shadow after his death in my life. And so when I found myself thinking about, is there anything that kind of omnipresently existed? It was actually, I guess it would have been the music that he loved. He would put on music and, you know, if we're in the car, it wouldn't have been unexpected to hear not just this, but, you know, Pink Floyd or Moody Blues, essentially the just the rundown of what would have been the biggest things from about 1965 to 1975. Yeah, yeah, totally. But this one, as I've evolved, you know, I, the thing that I really prize is when someone can say a lot through very little. And when music is really elegantly simple, I have this whole diatribe about the difference between simple and simplistic where and I know that's just kind of my own made up distinction because for most people I I assume that those are basically synonyms but I I I use them very differently for me simplistic is intentionally simplified from an from a perspective of almost condescension like I got to dumb this down because y- no one will understand this and it'll go over their head as opposed to simple which is potent and powerful and it just doesn't occupy 1 millisecond more than it needs to. And my hmm. favorite example would be E equals MC squared. It's so simple that everyone on the planet can remember it and you could see it on a bumper sticker. And But if you if you start studying theoretical physics and general relativity, you realize how insanely powerful that is and how much of our modern world is 
wrapped up in an understanding of the implications of that little formula. It almost is a joke. It's so simple. But simple is powerful. Simplistic is, you know, cutting around the corners and trying to, you know, sort of gloss over important details. Whereas the mm. other is is poetic. Yeah. You know, a haiku aspires to simplicity. Uh, and But simplistic is, you know, a bumper sticker. Uh, mm. That kind of and to me, that distinction is something I really try to never forget because it's really easy as a composer, especially if you're writing orchestral music. It's so easy to overwrite everything because you're like, oh, wow, I have flutes and holy shit, I can throw clarinets in here, too. And timpani <laughs> and and very before you know it, you've written this mess. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. And then. But what I love is this music. I remember I could go 10 years without listening to this album. And a lot of these songs I remember, they're just deeply ingrained and they're yeah. so simple. And I realized, you know, I think without your, the, like your provocation to look, to think about this made me step back and say, I think this has been a bit of a shadow guiding light for me as a composer without wow. my consciously being aware of it because wow. I admire its simplicity and its poignancy and its beauty. And I've just yeah. kind of not held that. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have thought to name this as one of those seminal inspirations for me, but. Inspired by your exercise, I thought. That's awesome. I That's, thought, you know that, what? I think this one means a lot more to me. Never mind the fact that obviously it, it offers a kind of living connection to my dad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that means a lot to me. But it also really offers something aesthetically that's non-trivial. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, that, I mean that that's I'm I'm very glad that the you know the show kind of made you think down those those lines. Let's we should hear some of this now. I, I uh, like I said, I wasn't super familiar with this. Obviously, I knew a couple of the the big singles, which we'll get to later. Sure, um, that were sort of you know radio staples, mm -hmm. still somewhat on oldies radio. Oh yeah, um, but the and first the folk song, rock the... category, yeah, you know that yeah. like, that that Bob Dylan. It's like if you've had enough Dylan, you know, go to Cat Stevens. Uh, there you go. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, let's listen to Where Do the Children Play because I, I this is the first song and I, I think it's a it's a really it's a it's a pretty song and it's just very it's just a well done song across the board. So. Mm -hmm. If you want, as you can get anything. I know we've come a long way. We're changing day to day. But tell me, where do the children play? I love that. I don't know if it's like a Fender Rhodes electric piano, but that's yeah. I sounds that. like it, or almost, almost Mellotron-y. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One thing too about, man, this era, like the early 70s, just because I think that they'd sort of like gotten a little more technical acumen out of the 60s, but 
Records of this era sound so good. Oh yeah. Just like just this to me is like the kind of apex maybe of like analog tape recording and just man these records just all sound good if you just want a naturalistic acoustic instruments kind of sound like it always strikes me when i hear stuff from this era yeah i couldn't agree more and and not just it's funny because i don't think anybody goes to cat stevens as a like a production inspiration mostly because it's just simple and unadorned and there's not much to it but there are a few little moments on this record where i go oh man that's a really cool little sound like, oh yeah totally that's a that's a little novel kind of gesture that that is probably underrated yeah i just mean more just from a sonic perspective i just think it's like they just sound really good mm-hmm. um oh jason i want to hear uh 240 because I, I love this because it was kind of funny. I was listening to this song, and I didn't realize like until they came in that there were no drums. And then I think the <laughs> drums make an awesome entry on this song. All right. Here we go. I love that they wait so long, too. Mm-hmm. And then he's just doing a lot of kind of fills and stuff. But will you keep on? I also, back to the sound kind of stuff, I love this, like, 70s, like, these super dead drum sounds. Like, they used to record these in, like, there was carpet all over the walls, like yep. there's zero like <laughs> reverb on this. It's all that real woody kind of like flat sound. Well, yeah, it's, it's because it's existing in between the two arrows of massively wet drums. If you think of like 50s jukebox, you know, yep. Beach Boys and that kind of stuff, or like the 80s Phil Collins kind of stuff where everything's wet yeah. and slappy. Uh, and totally. The, the Yeah, I, I love that. I love that dry... Um, crisp, you know, very punchy. It's interesting because normally a lot of that era, a lot of those kinds of records um, sound like they're trying to sound pretty live. uh, Mm. And yet they are pretty dry. You know, no live album would ever be that dry. Um, Yeah, no, totally. uh, They they somehow have that affect. Yeah, and I mean, you kind of touched on it a little bit, but this, you know, this record was definitely, this is 70, I believe. And, you know, so he's kind of on the front edge of, I was thinking uh, when I listened to this that a lot of records around this turn of the 60s and 70s, like some still feel like they're kind of like, you know, the 60s kind of persist in the 70s, I think, especially as long as like the Vietnam War is going on. But certain records, like this felt like a 70s record to me, not a 60s record. Like it kind of on the, like, People like James Taylor and mm. Harry Chapin and Jim Croce and Joni Mitchell, Jackson Brown, like that kind of, you know, singer-songwriter era. Right. You know, it just, it, it doesn't feel, it, it's like folky, but not in a revival kind of way. And it also doesn't really feel super, like, psychedelic or any sort of, like, you know, acid kind of stuff going on, like a lot of 60s records. It's, yeah. So... It, I think the closest thing that ties it to the 60s is the the lyrics far more than the production and the actual music of it, I think, because there is an element of it's not it's not fully like this song in particular. It's not full blown activism in the, you know, masters of war kind of sense. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, like like that, like or, or Hendrix or something where it's just overtly there's no other point to it. Uh, to me, it's it's sort of the diet version of that because it speaks to these bigger themes that are more universal. Like I never even thought of this song is considered, um, I think, now almost like an environmentalism anthem. 
Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I can see that. And, and it's funny how it never dawned on me that that's what it was uh, <laughs> when I first listened to it, and for the first twenty years, um, because in my mind, it's more about that wistfulness of as the world gets faster and faster and faster. You know, where does our innocence go? Mm-hmm. Um, and because that's that's a theme that's things versions of that are in virtually all of Cat Stevens' songs. You know, he loved yeah. goodbyes and and. Um, you know these big op- these open ended questions about you know where do we where do we go next and that's stuff that really speaks to me like you mentioned Harry Chapin I mean my God Cats in the Cradle is one of those songs that that just even as like an eleven year old kid who's like I was I, I found this p- powerful empathy with the father perspective of that song yeah. um, because it is just so poignant and so mm-hmm. touching and and I I there's a real to me that just people people just trying to figure out life is mm-hmm. what I, I tend to respond to. They're songs that, that are speaking to the fact that you go back 300 years, and if you go forward 300 years from now, people are probably going to be grappling with the same basic questions. Yeah. And so I, that's to me what this song was always speaking to. And I don't think it's not that, but giving it another glance, you're like, oh, there's actually very strong environmentalist kind of uh, statements in these lyrics, though. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. Um, all right. I want to go to the next song. This is a catchy one. I like this one a lot. It's a little less probably generous of a lyric, but hard-headed woman, um, <laughs> I think is, is a, is a, a, a good, good single. I, I, I like this song a lot. A, hard, hard, hard. a lot of good acoustic finger picking on this mm-hmm. record. I really like this part a lot. This is maybe a little more 60s, like UK folk kind of stuff. I'm looking for a hard-headed woman One who'll take me for myself And if I find my hard-headed woman I won't need and like here we're just it's just voice and guitar you know there's no arrangement no no you know something that I also like about his music is it always really feels like you can really feel that the lyrics and the the tune seem to kind of emerge at the same time it seems like because they it doesn't ever feel like he just wrote out a melody and then figured out okay what lyrics fit this they always seem right. to kind of move forward in this very organic way maybe that's a very inside baseball yeah. composer angle to take on it but i just <laughs> it always feels really um organic that uh, it's almost stream of conscious is a better way to put it right it doesn't it doesn't yeah. sound like it was too heavily thought through not to like disparage it as you know thoughtless music but it, it's it's maybe it's coming back to that concept of simple that you were mentioning like that it is not overwrought before it's recorded yeah yeah and it's not trying to defer to some formula of this is how that song genre is supposed to go exactly uh or or, or whatever you know not to say that he's bucking the stylistic trends so dramatically not at all he's right in the the pocket of them but um (laughs) but yeah i don't know there's something just like at the beginning of that one where there's this little stop um Mm -hmm. where you know is and then little breath and then keeps going. It's those little things where I feel like 
he's just sort of telling a story where the words and the music are, are one entity in, in his mind. I could be completely projecting. It could be that there's some documentary where he says, oh, yeah, I write all the lyrics start to finish. And then I, met, I try to figure out how, what song to go with it for all I know or vice versa. You know, it, I, I don't know. But it never sounds like that to me. It always feels interconnected. I do have a question for both of you. This is a serious question. How, how many fancy dancers would you say you know? Because Cat, Cat, he knows a lot of them. I'm not sure I know any. Fancy I'm, dancers. I know. <laughs> I he knows a lot of fancy dancers. I imagine your I just, line of work has brought, brought you into contact with, with a good number of uh, <laughs> performance artists, right, Austin? Like, you probably yeah, met some fancy dancers true. without even knowing it. I know some fancy, I know some fancy dance choreographers. Hey, yeah. whoa. I, pre- I prefer tiny dancers, but they can <laughs> nice. be tiny there and fancy. Go. Oh, yucky. Oh. I- <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's, uh, the next one, this is, you know, if, if you know a Cat Stevens song, uh, this is a classic song. I mean, you know, it, it's it's sort of undeniable in that way that I think certain pop hits are undeniable. Mm-hmm. And I, I think this definitely, you know, made Cat Stevens a, you know, I think he was some, you know, he was successful before this, I believe. But, you know, this definitely brought him to a a new level. This is Wild World. Um, I'm sure you've heard this somewhere down the line. And it's, you know, song, some songs are hits for a reason, you know, and this is, I think, one of those. And this has been covered a few times to a lot of success. Oh, I believe. yeah. I think Cheryl Crow did this, I think. A lot of nice things to wear, but then a lot of nice things turn bad out there. Oh, baby, baby, it's a wild world. I love this part. Do, 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 do. I always love that. to get just to smile. Yeah, I don't know. What, what can you say? This is just a really good song. It's funny because I've heard this song be um, chastised when looking at it through a kind of modern lens that it actually comes off a bit misogynistic because he's it's essentially a breakup song yeah. that, well, that he's yeah. saying, you know, well, you know, the world's Little innocent old you uh, out in that big world, you know. I, hmm. I I wanted to protect you, and now you got to go on your own. I hope you'll be okay. And and people see that as sort of inherently misogynistic. And I I I think that's an uncharitable take. Personally, yeah, uh, I think I think it's a song of it's a it's a bittersweet goodbye. You know, uh, uh, that's that's acknowledging just his perspective. You know. Maybe I'm being overly charitable, but I never saw this as talking down to mm. the sort of the woman, whoever, whoever it's for. Uh, yeah. Well, I guess I, I mean, I, I, it's a product of its time to a certain degree, but you know, in comparison to like, the, you know, the Rolling Stones or like, you know, 
Dylan at times can be very acidic. You know what I mean? Maybe like, it's I, I cold don't know outside. <laughs> Yeah, you know, or Led Zeppelin or whatever. I mean, I don't think it's in in the chorus of classic rock. I wouldn't say it's one of the worst offenders, but um, it do, yeah, I don't see it as an offender. I see the point. I don't think that that's yeah, a wildly try, yeah. off-target comment, but I do think it's a little bit of a um, it's like a nitpick to my taste because I I I don't think it's intended in that spirit even a little. I, again, yeah. I don't know. Uh, I don't know Cat Stevens, Yusuf Islam, Yusuf Cat Stevens, uh, you know, <laughs> whichever, yeah. no. where, wherever he's at now. Uh, uh, I always knew him as, as Yusuf uh, because he was all, he was Yusuf by the time I discovered him. You know, I was growing oh. up in the late 80s, early 90s. Obviously, he, he had long since converted. Um, so, you know, if he was in the news, it was always at, or like doing a show or something. Although he, I think he swore off shows for a long, long time hmm. um, and only came back to it at, at some point much later. But yeah, nonetheless, the, he wrote this as Cat Stevens. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, wh- I at the end of the day, though, Sorry, the chorus, is you know, when you write a chorus like that, it's just it's going to kind of steamroll over any, you know, misgivings people have. Honestly, um, I did. You mentioned something uh and I, Jason, can you go to 240 because this is like one of those things I love in like classic rock songs that they do. And I never really like put it into words or, or noticed it, but it's right at 240. And I always love it when people do this. It's like this extra pause beat and then it kicks in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right there. <laughs> I don't know what that, what is that? But I love a lot of people do that. I love it every time. Yep. The little pregnant pause. He's like putting his voice into the uh, percussive, like <laughs> yeah. instrument section, right? He's adding yeah, to that it. upbeat I, with uh, it. I love that part. That's that's a little trick that never gets old to me. Yeah, um, I feel you. <laughs> the the next song I wanted to get into, and this uh, this to me was, you know, I, like I said, I wasn't really familiar with this album. This this one I really uh, w- was kind of the one that really, in terms of this ones that I didn't know or hadn't heard. Um, Sad Lisa. I thought this was just really, um, man, this is a pretty song, just beautiful arrangements, uh, some really subtle, cool string arrangements on this. I don't know if this is one of your favorites, Austin. Oh, it but, absolutely uh, one... is one of my, that little. The little. Oh, damn, the... you got your keyboard. Yeah, I got a piano, a little upright sitting right next to me. And uh, <laughs> that, um, that, I, I, I played this one on, on the piano when I was learning as a kid a lot because it's oh, wow. it's very, as you'll hear, very pianistic. And then that little solo violin. This is one of those that has a little production trick in it. I I, 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 I wish I had prepared better and had a timestamp for you, but I can, I can, I can, I can, we'll figure it out. But this one has, there's a moment in this where the piano is doubling with a B3 in a way that is hmm. so unexpected. Again, when you think about folk music or folk rock or whatever you want to label it um you don't think of those kinds of little savvy production subtleties you know like you picture like george martin like this mad scientist who's coming up with fascinating and amazing colors mm-hmm. and, th- and you don't think of that sort of thing for this genre in, in that time period yeah yeah um but this song has one of those and yeah this one is an, a, a major outlier on the rest of this um record i totally i'm glad you're playing it because i i this is far from his most famous. This is like I never. No one's ever even heard. Anytime I bring this up, they have no idea what I'm talking about. And oh, I, I, it's just simple and beautiful. It is. Uh, I'll play it from the top. 
That's a great piano part. You hear the organ? Yep, mm. yep. Is that a B3 you said? Yeah, I think so. I could be wrong. It sounds like it, though. She hangs her head and cries in my shirt. She must be hurt very badly. Tell me what's making you sad Open your door, don't hide in the dark You're lost in the dark, you can trust me Cause you know that's how it must be I was wondering what that sound was. Sad Lisa, Lisa. It really adds to that yeah, moment, the, to the texture. The, the piano and the organ in perfect unison with each other where yeah. you hear the attack of the piano note but then the sustain of the organ it's a great little trick i so need to steal that someday upon her pain getting deeper though my love wants to relieve she walks alone from wall to wall Lost in a hall, she can't hear me. Though I know she likes to be near me. This, I think, is a is an important track for my understanding of this record. It was also one that I hadn't heard um, before being assigned, because it's the first time that, like, I don't know, it's an emotional downbeat significantly in the album. Even "Hard Headed Woman" is about like pursuing woman and uh, you know a woman who stands up for herself, that sort of thing. Um, but every song, like the three tracks that precede this, are all more upbeat than this. And this is mm-hmm. very languid, very sentimental. You've got, you know, a uh, violin going in the background. This, oh, so, this solo, by the way, is beautiful. Yep. I didn't want to talk over it, but it's like <laughs> the first time you, you're... The first time you, it's revealed that like this is probably going to be a sad album by turns, and then you get out songs like "I Might Die Tonight," "Father and Son," "Into White" that are just much more downbeat. So it's a turning point for me. And the string arrangements are really like string arrangements can kind of really become overly saccharine and kind of overpower songs at times. And like these are really subtle, and they just they they add to it without like taking away from the kind of minimalism of this oh, yeah. track, which I really like. Yeah, I mean the strings aren't even in there for the first half of it, and uh, yeah, and then only appear during that instrumental run through the verse, um, and then you know now here. And this is what I mean, where one day I will free. As I found myself thinking, I realized I think this one exerted more influence over me than I ever gave it credit for. This album and this song is a good example of what I mean, where there are a lot of really great songs in the world of what I'll just broadly call pop music, but that just basically means all genres mm-hmm. <laughs> that are non-orchestral, non-classical, non-soundtrack, non-jazz, um, and non-like folk music in the tr- in the sense of like traditional, like in the ethnomusicological, eth- ethnomusicological sense of folk music, you know, like farmer mm-hmm. songs and things like that. Uh, so if we just say all rock you know, and 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 pop and all the various subgenres. If we just collectively name that, there's a million great songs where 
if you play the actual tune they're singing on a piano, it's like... Or whatever, you know what I mean? Like... They're not really, there's not a hell of a lot there by way of melody. It's, it's, there, it's all about the lyrics and then there'll be some, you know, great hook and an instrumental break or something. And forgive me as I swivel over to my piano here for proper demonstration. But like what I love about this is that's a real tune. That's a real, what he's singing, what these lyrics are coming forth as, this is a real melody, you know? Like it, that's, yeah. that's, that's, a, that's a fucking tune. You know what it I mean? Really that, moves. That's yeah, a totally. real, real melody. And the songs that I love throughout history all have that in common. I, I realized at some point, you know, you think of like, uh, you know, it's a real freaking tune. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, number one, Austin, you've you've kind of raised the bar. Now, anyone yeah. that doesn't like comes on the show and isn't prepared to like illustrate their points on an actual piano is they're going to be slipping a little bit. We welcome <laughs> you to the series it. finale of CrossFit. <laughs> I love it. Um, so, Austin, I wanted to. Um, I mean, obviously, I think we, we'll definitely get to father and son. Um, that's a, a significant one. But I wanted to make sure that um, you know we had time. This is your pick, and. Um, you know, I feel like we've covered some of the big songs. Uh, what any other ones that you no, wanted to? That's, um, you, you, yeah, w- I, funny enough, the ones Wild World, uh, Where the Children Play, Sad Lisa, and Father and Son are the four seminal. They shaped me as a person. Um, I, what I particularly love about Father and Son, again, p- part of. What I love about this era is that the, just broadly speaking, the lyrics were on another level, because again, I love I love simple, and poetic, um, but yet trying to say something of consequence, and there's just so many songs, even good songs, where you go back and you kind of scrutinize the lyrics and you realize this is a bunch of bullshit. It doesn't even mean anything. It just just words. It's just rant or it's <laughs> it's insanely shallow and like okay, yeah, I get it. Your boyfriend left you or whatever. You know what I mean? Like there there's a lot of songs that you just think, you know, the lyrics almost feel like a necessary evil. The song was fully produced and is amazing. You know, I think of like obviously this the, the more the more kind of top 40 pop hits the deeper you go into that list the more this starts to tend to become true um but but really honestly it's true there's a million that you could name uh in this category even mm-hmm. even even the fucking early beatles you listen to the songs mm-hmm. and it's it amounts to little more other than hey yeah. what's up i think you're hot <laughs> uh, i know but i i will defend I, i'd like to defend you know kind of nonsense in a sense like i think that that has a place in music to me. You know what I mean? Just oh, for catch, sure. I'm not. Like, I don't think everything to, needs to make a big statement to be, you know, valid. Or, I, or yeah. in my opinion, at least, I 100 percent agree. I am not. It is. It should not be implicit that I'm saying that which is nonsense. I wish didn't exist or something like that. I'm definitely not saying it doesn't have its place, and that I myself 
don't have a soft spot for a million songs that I'm just like, I love this song. And it's like, what do you think the lyrics are saying? Absolutely nothing. Yeah. I, you know, I, 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 I'm simply saying that's what I think elevates this. Um, yeah. Is it and, is it it this notion, this tension of a father and son struggling to connect? Yeah, um, and I you know, I wanted to connect this back to something you said earlier um, about Harry Chapin. I, I think that this is kind of a one of a few songs and artists at this time um, where you can kind of feel as the '70s, you know, kind of come on. Uh, you know, the 60s were very much about, I guess, you know, exploring, you know, mm-hmm. uh, whether that was mentally through drugs or, you know, traveling or, you know, things like that. And you start to feel a little more like, you know, a lot of these people that grew, come of age in that era now are, you know, I think they're starting to approach 30 and they're maybe feeling, you know, a little bit older. And, you know, songs like Cats in the Cradle, Old Man by Neil Young, mm-hmm. you know, stuff by Jackson Brown. So I think there's there seemed to be something around this type of song, I think at this time, you know, maybe kind of looking back or, or maybe also looking at their parents. I was going to say. They were, a- they, were, they were sort of seen as adversarial, I think, throughout most of the 60s because it was kind of like, you know, we're, we're overturning the apple cart and, you know, this is a new society uh, and, you know, we're kind of expanding our minds. And now I think they're starting to get a little bit older and maybe starting to see their parents. Um, and even the Beatles did this, like, when I'm 64, that was even earlier. But, you know, you start to see this, I think, this this generation that we're sort of the hippie generation starting to to maybe view their parents in a little more uh, sympathetic light, maybe. Yeah, I think I think you nailed it. My my take was the generational divide from the so-called greatest generation who, you know, defended the free world against the forces of darkness and then the Vietnam generation that were essentially sold that that was what they were going to go to too. And then went off into the fucking mouth of hell uh, and, and were seen as traitors and were seen as monsters. There, there was a, you know, the, all the civil rights movement and all that, none of that was happening in a vacuum. Like the, the power of Vietnam as a separating point between, especially among men, obviously as the, as the soldiers, overwhelmingly the soldiers in these fights there was a lot of friction there because there's all these disapproving fathers saying, you know, go and make something of yourself. And then and then hating what they're mm-hmm. seeing on the news of what their own son is doing. And then, of course, and then 50,000 plus being killed. I mean, it, my father, you know, he, he was in officer training. Um, he, he was basically lucky. It was dumb luck that he didn't go serve. And he he had to go through training and all that because he was literally at that age at that time. And he had many friends who went and came back completely broken. And he also had many friends who didn't come back. And so hearing him talk about the indescribable social impact of all of that, you know, we have, we have, it's like imagining if September 11th lasted for 10 years, you know, you think about something that just shook everybody and everybody felt a very strong emotional reaction to it. It's like, the, that, you know, setting aside, obviously, what happened as a result of September 11th, that is in a way kind of similar, but but it's it was just so radically transformative. And the fact that it was coming off of the back of World War Two, which virtually everybody agreed was the right thing to have done. Um, it um, it just fucked everybody up. It basically made it made everything very uh <laughs> it made everything very emotionally fraught and confusing. And so I think that's where you start to see a lot of those, those songs analyzing the generational differences. And what I love about this one is that it's very compassionate. 
uh, where it's kind of like a father and a son talking past each other where neither of them comes across to me as a monster, you know, cause mm. listen to Harry Chapin cats in the cradle. That sounds like that's a song about the failures of a father and having to reap what he sowed. This song is not quite taking that perspective. It's kind of like, why don't we understand each other? Uh, and there's something just so painful and beautiful about that. Yeah, this is a great one. Let's hear it. It's not time to make a change Just relax, take it easy You're still young, that's your fault There's so much you have to know Find a girl, settle down If you want, you can marry Look at me, I am old, but I'm happy was once like you are now And I know that it's not easy To be calm When you found something going on But take your time Think a lot Why think of everything you've got For you will still be here tomorrow But your dreams may not To explain When I do He turns away again It's always been the same Same old story From the moment I could talk I was ordered to listen Now there's a way And I know That I have to go away I know I have to go It's just perfect. Yeah, it's a great song. It really is. So we heard one verse there from the father's (laughs) perspective, one verse from the son's perspective. Did either of you listen to the 50th anniversary re-recording of this album that uh, Yusuf Cat Stevens did? I I knew that that existed, but I don't know that I actually have heard it. It's it's on Spotify, and I almost accidentally sent it to Matt when I was revealing his pick because it, like, auto-populates in Google. But anyway... um, he re-recorded this song as well and then only in the new recording he recorded only the father's voice so the son's voice is still his you know 1970s tenor oh and it's wow a, it's a really strange effect i think it adds something to that experience in particular i'm not such a huge fan of the whole re-recording of the album but it was just a really interesting experiment for like thematically what yeah. the song is doing and what it's saying for him to like well, look weird. back at his I'll own career that, that way yeah, it's, right. it's, it's an interesting lesson. Like I said, there's a lot of yeah. rearrangement and rewriting that doesn't super, like, add to the songs for me. But what hmm. a, like what other kind of career? Like, maybe Paul McCartney could go back and sing Beatles songs with himself today. It would sound really probably terrible, frankly. But if he did it, it'd be, like, a comparable <laughs> experience, you know? Like, a seminal yeah, artist going back to his own work yeah. and, and talking to himself. So, so strange. Well, and somehow fitting, because he probably sees himself through... You know, looking back 50 years. Exactly. You know, at himself then. I don't know how old he yeah. is, but he must be in his nope, 70s. You know, so. <laughs> I actually, I, I, when I, I want to correct myself because I said some of these people like were approaching 30, which is true in the case of Dylan, who was born in 31. But, um, Cat was born in 48. 
Whoa. So he's only 22 years old when he makes this record, which makes it almost more, like, makes it more impressive to me. Like, he really Definitely. started young. I had no idea how young he was. Cause he had a few albums before this. I didn't know he was um, that young. I thought he was probably late 20s. I didn't realize early 20s. Yeah, no, he's I mean, only, yeah, little only baby 22. Boy. So, wow. Crazy. Um, well, that I mean, that's a great song. And, you know, like I said, I really enjoyed this album. And, it, you know, I'm, I'm, I was very happy you picked it because it wasn't one I, had, for some reason, engaged with. And it was a... Uh, it was a lot of fun and Me too. you know it's just it's a pretty record you know it's just as well it's well arranged well sung and well performed well i i can't thank you enough for the the prompt to to sort of soul search a bit uh because mm-hmm. i i i you know there he and a few others represent a kind of soft spot for me because of specific childhood memories and things like that but i i found myself yeah i mean i guess i already said it but i just was analyzing it's influence in the background in a way that I think I had never fully appreciated. And, and I feel I'm, I'm somehow the better for knowing that. So I owe you, uh, I owe you something. We'll figure out what I owe you, <laughs> but I owe you something. You're, coming on the show is thanks enough. I'm, I'm, we're, we're, it's we're a genuine pleasure. Never, like I said, yeah. it was, a, it was exciting just by virtue of the weird premise, uh, which I love. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Great. So, yeah. And, <laughs> Which the weird premise, uh, you know, creates, like I said, very weird juxtapositions. And this, I think, episode is no different. Um, I actually <laughs> yeah. did this some, somewhat as a joke because last week I did Blue Oyster Cult. And yeah. so I'm only doing bands with the initials BOC anymore. <laughs> I was wondering um, if you intentionally did that. So, no, I totally did. Yeah. Well, it just made me think of this record, which is a record I really love. And I just hadn't thought about it forever. And I was thinking of BOC. And um, anyway, it's Boards of Canada. Music has the right to children. Um, they were a uh, Scottish. They are, I think, maybe a Scottish duo. They, they're a little mysterious. Um, a Scottish duo, brothers uh, Michael Sanderson and Marcus Yone. Um, and this came out in I think '98. A mm-hmm. uh, roommate of mine at that time was very into like everything. There was a lot of music. That time was very, I think, you know, influential there was just a lot going on in the electronic music and, and dance music sphere at that time and I, I wasn't like i was more engaged with rock probably but my room it was very into like electronic stuff and he this is one of those records he played for me and it just it really captured my imagination in a certain way and i, I became you know a, a huge fan of it and it's a certain i don't know it's hard for me to describe this sound i don't know and i'll be curious um uh you know austin what you think about it but um it has a very, it, it's an electronic album that, that feels sort of new and old at the same time. Totally. Uh, they, they used a lot of, I, I read up and they used a lot of vintage synths. They actually recorded stuff to tape machine first to kind of degrade the sound in certain ways to give it a kind of weird gauzy uh, kind of sound. Um, I guess it's probably easier almost playboards of Canada for people than try to describe it because it's, it's sort of a hard mm. thing. So why don't we just start off with the first, you know, the first couple tracks here. And the other thing with this album is sort of like a short track and a long track generally. Um, Yeah. One of the things that I like that stood out in that, in that first track, um, that was one of those points that I, I made a note uh, for you guys. I'm glad you're starting there because I, I really, funny enough, that era of the sixties and seventies, one of the things that I think really defines it, that, that very few, um, you know, like bands or artists have, have, have gotten away with, especially, you know, heading into the eighties, even there's very few that really managed to have that sense where they're, it's, it's like they're putting on a show and they know it. 
a lot of songs are <laughs> like get to the point, verse, chorus, move on. And but then when you think of Pink Floyd's of the world, and then later like Queen or or Genesis or where you know you'll have or you think of uh, what's the um, um, Garden of Eden, you know, or the uh, that's the Simpsons version, the uh, uh, <laughs> the um, uh, uh, Inagata de Vida, uh, where there's oh, like an iron, iron butterfly, iron butterfly, yeah, there's like a ten minute intro, um, even though it's nowhere near that long. That first track, I mean, what I listening to it, yeah, I was like, let, let, it's just, it's just confidently like just relax like we're gonna take you crazy ass places so we're just uh-huh. it, it doesn't feel like it's in any kind of rush and that's rare yeah let, let's listen to this wildlife analysis is the first song and it'll kind of give you a sense of what boards of canada is like because i think they're a fairly unique band in a lot of ways Yeah, these songs are kind of, you know, they, they're more feel songs, you know, and mood, mood kind of songs, I guess. The, that's what's interesting is not, not all of them. Uh, that, <laughs> it was cool to, you know, this was, if you listened to my, uh, my, you know, my, my self-record when uh, opening <laughs> the email, um, this was one of those bands that I was like. I know I've listened to them before, and I, but I, I, I never remember. I'm terrible at remembering, um, the kind of connect four of, in my brain of, you know, um, this song is that this band, you know, because mm-hmm. I, I guess because of the thing I mentioned at the beginning, I move around so much. Uh, so yeah. it's one of those where I was like, I know I've heard them, but I, I can't remember until I hit play. I won't remember. You know, if I heard them once in passing or if I like, you know, had a roommate that listened to it on loop eternally and like, oh, of course, I know this by heart. I just forgot that mm-hmm. what it's called, you know. Um, yeah. So it, for for the listener, they, this album is kind of interesting. It's an interesting structure. They tend to like, I think Eagle in Your Mind is coming on now, but they tend to do like a sort of a short about minute and a half snippet and then a, maybe a longer five or six minute song. Um which is kind of, I think, a cool structure for this record, but... Mm-hmm. And some of it is really, really boldly experimental. Um, and it's funny, because really, really ambient music, which I just would define ambient as meaning, like, there's no obvious direction you don't feel it building to a Hmm. climax you don't feel it coming down to a single point of light you know those kinds of things that there's like the directionality that directionality is something that i love in my in what i listen to and it's something i work hard to try to achieve in my writing so this kind of music you'd, you'd have been hard pressed to name something more removed from what i think my style is and yet as i listen to it more and more i was like but damn, they they do some really weird experimental shit, and I do I do aspire to that. So I don't know, I don't know where yeah, that left me. A, but uh, there's a lot of subtle shifts, I think. Oh um, yeah, 
in, in this, you know, they kind of lull you into this sort of like dreamlike kind of state. And then, then little things will change kind of like underneath, you know, like bass tones or little new melodies are introduced. But, and I, I like their, they have a very odd sense of like drum programming or, or whether they're using samples or whatever, but like their, their drum beats are very kind of stilted in a way that I, I sort of find interesting. It's like this pretty is a example of that. I totally agree. Um, a lot of these songs, especially the longer ones and like, um, um, one of them that I made note of is, uh, we, you know, you can get to it later if you want is the, the Rue the World, where if you listen early and then you just skip to the end, it's, it has, it has gone somewhere entirely different where it doesn't, it sounds like you change tracks. Yes. Yes. Mm. Uh, well, let's listen to that because I I, th- I know where the change is at four fifteen, um, but let's listen to Rue the World. This is um, yeah. The timings that I wrote down, feel free to ignore. But if if you, I I marked that if you listen at like one ten, and then you were to jump to five thirty, you're like, it's just I love I love that that's the same song, because <laughs> it doesn't sound like it at all, and that that to me is, it takes a certain courage to make those hard turns, especially yeah, this organic yeah. slow evolution. Uh, you know, not a lot of folks could pull that off. So one ten and then five thirty? That's what I wrote. I mean do yeah, do it. Yeah, go ahead. Follow, That's great. Follow cool. your nose <laughs> or your ears, I suppose. Yeah, there's just something so kind of gauzy and almost reminds me of kind of seeing like old like Super 8 footage or like home <laughs> movies kind of, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of like semi like washed out yep. quality of old mm-hmm. film. Um, I don't know, it's sort of a ghostly quality. I think it's kind of interesting too because this is 98 and you know, there, I think there's a lot of stuff now like not to bring out waves, but like chill wave or vapor wave, stuff like that or uh, you know, even like chill lo-fi beats to study to kind of stuff oh, like yeah. i feel like like these guys kind of tapped into some of those things that i think now are like more common but you know in 98 we're definitely not also here's oh. here like this is me doing a little bit of shop talk listening through this listening to this again there were times where i thought the tedious fucking agony to make this sound in 1998 compared to now where there's all these plugins and mm-hmm. all these pre-baked sounds oh God, that do yeah. all this shit for you. To, I was like, wow, they, I think you're right. Also uh, the, the kind of, you know, the sort of chill hop, uh, genre of, yeah, like put on music to study to that's got some groove, but it's pretty low energy. I think for the folks that, spend all their time making music like that. I can't imagine Boards of Canada is not one of their most influential. And I, that was one of yeah. those connections that I, I would have overlooked and never thought to make that connection if you hadn't pointed me towards yeah. it. And then it's listening like, to it, I thought, I think they're getting a bit of a revival right now amongst yeah, young music definitely. creators. Though I would say, I think there's something sort of, you know, I don't want to say ominous, but like there's a certain kind of unsettling quality sometimes to Boards of Canada, I think, that isn't necessarily... I mean, it is very, it is very chill in a lot of ways, but I think there's sort of a weird, like, 
some of the stuttering kind of like disembodied voices and things like that. Yeah, something kind of sinister in there. It's kind of like it's creepy at times. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I like that about it very much. Um, Yeah, yeah. Like actually, let's go to the what's what's the change at five? Five thirty. Or five thirty. I mean, these songs are all kind of more grooves than like songs necessarily. Mm-hmm. It's coming. Yeah, out. this is great. Yeah, I love that. I, they, they have so many. I mean, yeah. if you like like analog synths and stuff. This album is just like an embarrassment of riches of like cool old like analog synth tones. Mm-hmm. It's also a great demonstration of that. Whenever people started experimenting with tape loops, you know, even as early as the 50s and 60s in the kind of avant-garde scene, um, people realized that no matter what the inherent rhythm of something is, if you loop it, it just starts to take on this kind of musical quality Mm -hmm. where you start to pick up these kind of repeating patterns. And so you can have a very steady groove like we're hearing, you know, this... And then you layer something over it that's, you know, and they're like, they're mm-hmm. not related to each other in any kind of musical sense. But yet, because they're repeating over the same interval of time, they end up in this weird hypnotic dance with each other that that uh, is, I don't know a right term to describe that, but this album is basically one example of that after another, after another, after another, after mm-hmm. another. Where the the constituent parts are so creative and so interesting, and it was yeah, it was one of those where I thought, man, this is this is cool. I'm I'm glad I'm glad that you you uh, you singled this one out because I I would never have thought of it. You know, like I said, they're they're a band that I or a group that I more knew of than intimately was familiar with, yeah. and I felt mm-hmm. a lot of kind of <sighs> professional admiration of just the technique if nothing else like yeah it's really solid uh, speaking of the kind of unsettling quality i wanted <laughs> i have a, a daughter she's 10 and uh, sometimes kids say things that are kind of like cool and kind of weird at the same time <laughs> so listen to the color of the fire yeah that, i marked that one too See, here's where it's not necessarily like chill beats to study to, you know, it's kind of like, yeah. uh, like <laughs> terrifying weird, like, beats to cower to. Kind of <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Terrifying beats to cower to. I love it. That's going to be my new band camp page. <laughs> but that's what I, that, that's exactly what I loved about this is that there were some, some tracks that felt explicitly chill and mellow and moody. And then others like this, which, you know, a composer certainly found in a temp score for a horror film at some point, uh, being told, you know, we want something like this that's very creepy and understated, and it manages to be creepy through very minimal <laughs> sort of, uh, like, density. You know, like, it, there's mm-hmm. not much there, and it's just immediately creepy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And <laughs> So I have, to, I have to get to what my daughter said. We were like, I was just, you know, because when we were doing the show, I, I listened to this stuff while like, we're like on a stereo, we're like making dinner and stuff. And she's like, this is really weird music, daddy. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. Well, what do you think about it? What, what do you think it is? And she's like, well, I think it's like, maybe there's a baby 
that's still in her mommy and she's just hearing her parents say that they love her but she's like in the womb whoa <laughs> I was picturing whoa. I was like, that just... I was like that's really creepy and kind of cool <laughs> kids say a lot of weirdly creepy stuff like that sometimes and it's like I didn't think about it like that. that is... I thought you were going to say that to your daughter responded by being like I <laughs> No, she puts not on that, a black lounge creepy, voice. But. Oh man, yeah, exactly. I still, th- I still thought. Yeah, I was like, it was it in twenty years we will meet again or whatever. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, it uh, reminds me of twenty-five a, years we will meet again. I remember some meme traveling around where it was like a mother says, you know, I went with my son to uh, like Denny's, and he's like nine, and the waiter says, uh, "What, what would you like?" And he looks at her and goes, um, "I would like to feast on the unborn." And she's like, the hell? And he goes, it's my, my son wants eggs. He wants scrambled eggs. <laughs> um, Austin, I'd like to throw it over to you. You know, just what any songs that, that we haven't covered that stuck out to you? Well, it's funny. So um, the, the two that I made note of, uh, one, as soon as I hit play on it, I was like, I've definitely heard this one. And so I Googled it. And it was like the kind of hit single uh, is Roy G. Biv. Yeah, and, that's kind of like if if Boards of Canada had quote unquote hits. I guess this yeah, is like a hit. That one had had crossed my desk more than once. And the funny thing was that I thought it's far and away the most safe and kind of uh, sterile <laughs> to my taste. There's such huh. bold, wonderful experiments throughout this, and then there's one where they write something that's a lot closer to just kind of like a normal so-called normal like song yeah mm-hmm. and that's I think the one a, that's the hit of course i was like that that awakens the inner cynic in me uh <laughs> that you know i would say though it's really good though i mean it, it's, it's, it's a really fine. cool sounding yeah, song for yeah. sure and i and i recognize that my appreciation for the experimentalism is coming from the angle of being a composer who's always trying to push myself so i i i, I admire that when i see other people doing things especially when i look at this and i think jesus in 1998 this was a lot harder to do than it is now uh, and so I, I totally recognize I'm not really listening as just like this normal audience member there, but it's, it's really filtered through my, my lens. But, um, but yeah, mm-hmm. this one to me, yeah. it really this stood is, out for that reason in a, in it a does, less, yeah. less favorable way to my taste. Massive like synth bass on this is pretty cool. like Tron yeah yeah I was about to say like like a Vangelis track yeah yeah or like some John Carpenter kind Mm -hmm. of score stuff Tangerine Dream but like melodic in a way like like I was saying like the the rest of the album most of the rest of the album isn't like it doesn't need the repetition to get there to a point of feeling like like a song you know it's got Mm -hmm. melody right off the bat it's got uh you know, multiple tracks and all these different lush chords and stuff right off the bat. It's just like, okay, I had to earn almost every other song that I listened to on this album after like a minute 15 <laughs> of listening. And this one's just like instantly rewarding melodic fun yep. baseline. And it builds from there, which striking. Yeah. I, I found I, a really interesting a, experience. I, I don't know that it's my favorite track, but it definitely was like, this one stands out for that reason. Yeah. I would say, um, Austin, that, the next album after this, Geogatti, which I was really on the fence about which one I chose, but 
Um, that one probably goes further into the more arty, kind of dark qualities of the group. Um, I could say it's significantly less poppy than this album, if that's possible. Well, and th that's um, the thing. This song is really the only thing that felt poppy to me compared with the rest where it had elements of that, but then it would smuggle in other elements that are wildly not that. And I loved that yeah. so much. Uh, this one felt like they kind of said, let's just try writing a song. And they did a, they mm -hmm. did a fine job of it. it it's just yeah. in the context of how, how wild so much of the rest of it was. And just these wonderful little sneaky, sneaky uh, things that they were doing from a production standpoint. This one just yeah. felt somehow like they were, kind of exhausted and said can we just can we just be normal for once <laughs> yeah and i'm totally projecting all of this for all yeah, i know, you the, know though, this I, was the hardest one in their for all i know <laughs> in their defense sometimes though like i found that with bands where like we write something it seems like oh this isn't really like our style this seems weird but then it's like this is kind of good you know what i mean like it, it's almost like totally and there's nothing you, wrong it's with like that. you like, can't get it out of your head you know what i mean yeah well that, um, that's the thing i mean listen to what i put forward today like obviously simple and straightforward is a winning trait Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. You know, it, the, this is not a criticism. It was just in context of hearing one crazy ass, weird, cool thing after another. Suddenly a thing that felt normal was kind of almost this letdown. But it's all yeah, about the context. Yeah. The only other thing that yeah. I would, Sorry, sorry. Were you about to say something? No, you should check out the next album then for sure. I'd say Gio Gotti, the next one. Yeah, I will. And it could be another one of those that I've, I'll, I'll realize, oh yeah, I've, I've heard this. I just never remembered what it was, but mm -hmm. I, I will absolutely. The, the only other one that I wanted to call out, and you can just listen to it for a few seconds, and, and but the specific reason why was the thing I already mentioned of uh, just my admiration of how tedious it was to make something that sounded like this back in 1998 compared to how easy the tech makes it for us today is if you listen to Pete standing alone, the timing that I wrote down is 345. And it's just the beat production is full of deliciousness. That's all. That's all I could say about it. It's just there's a million little sonic events that you hear and go fuck that's that's just tasty it's just good shit all right get ready for it it's pete standing alone at 345 yeah that's cool and i love all this kind of like i, I know that they re recorded stuff on tape to kind of almost like degrade the quality of it i don't know if they were dumping mm -hmm. like to cassette and then like back onto two inch, but um, very possible. It sounds there's a lot in here that sounds very like the frequency spectrum is so narrow that it really feels like they've run it through a lot. Like you could make a piece like this in ten minutes today, because of just how many tools will do so much of this for you. Yeah, I mean like plugins now. It's yeah. just like turn on a switch. Exactly. So like innovation has had to move in other directions because people have kind of codified all this, which is why when I hear it, I think, oh man, in 98, this was pretty damn fresh to my, to my ear. You know, I, I always welcome to be proven wrong. And somebody say, well, actually in 1992, so-and-so <laughs> yeah. did this. And I love that. I love that process of discovery, but I, yeah, to me, this was like as a beat, there's nothing intrinsically crazy about it. But yet every single little sound feels like a bespoke, carefully created yeah. little element all on its own. And yeah. you know, when you're working with tape or really early, uh, you know, under underpowered versions of Pro Tools and its precursors, like it just 
It was so tedious. Everything had to be made by hand. Yeah, and this, this, uh, yeah, I, I, I love their just their chord voicings and just like the synth tones. Or just there's something very haunting about it mm-hmm. sometimes to me. Yeah, it doesn't sound like they were terribly happy people. <laughs> no, it's not like it's not a dance floor electronic album. That's for sure. No, um, that's for sure. It's much more of the Jason, uh, I wanted, vampire uh, rave. This, <laughs> no, <laughs> it's like the come down record. After. <laughs> yeah, true. Um, uh, like I wanted to uh, check out Telephasic Workshop. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can just play like the main groove. Um, and then I wanted to skip ahead to four after a while because they, they do this thing with like cutting up. Uh, one of the things I like about this album is there's a lot of like kind of manipulated and kind of distorted or cut up human voices on this record that mm-hmm. they have sort of a weird relationship to the human voice, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, telephasic workshop. So you kind of play the main groove just to kind of get a sense and then. Uh, skip ahead to four where like these they do this like stuttering uh multiple voice samples thing that is kind of like trippy So here you start to get a, some of that stuttering thing, which kind of builds throughout. Maybe we can skip ahead to four now, but like it, it, as it goes on, it gets really like disorienting almost. Yeah, you know what it feels like? It feels like a like a kill pot or a kill switch on a guitar when somebody's playing like chords or oh, a solo yeah, yeah. and they just yeah, yeah, like yeah. jam at it just fast as they can smashing it like a like a price is right button but like doing that with a monologue you know with somebody's voice yeah but yeah there's just like like i said there's sort of a ghostly quality of this record to me in mm-hmm. a way and i think a lot of it's just like these these voices that kind of like or you know samples of old like sounds like educational movies from the seventies or, you know, like (laughs) movies that you saw in school or something like, you know, it's, it's got a weird talking about like um, the powers of 10 video. uh, Yeah. (laughs) that uh, Featured music by uh, Elmer Bernstein, but it's kind of in this vein. Funny enough. Yeah. Actually, if there were, there were moments in this, on this record that, that um, especially color of fire that made me think of, the first ever, like the actual trivia for the first ever fully electronic film score is the uh, sci-fi sort of quasi-horror thriller movie called Forbidden Planet, oh. which was um, a husband-wife team of like electronic pioneers named Lewis and Bebe Baron. And this is way before the world of synths. So what they, they basically had to solder circuits that created sound. And hmm. so it's, it's not music by any conventional definition but yet there's moments in this album a lot of moments especially if you think if you kind of 
listen past the beat um, or in those moments where it's not driven by a beat that have that same quality where it just feels like it's this collision of wild sounds that are being created. And, and the voices yeah, have that yeah. same quality here. Yeah, I actually found a quote by uh, Michael Sanderson. Um, the, the cover, which is sort of like this family photo of actually, I think their family in Banff, Canada, with the, the faces kind of blurred out. But um, <clears throat> he said, if there's a sadness in the way we use memory, it's because the time you're focusing on is gone forever. It's a theme we play on a lot. That bittersweet thing where you face up to the fact that certain chapters of your life are just Polaroids now. So like, Jesus. I think like a lot of this stuff is very, you know, uh, purposeful, like that kind of nostalgic, but you know, I don't know. It's a weird thing. It has a very future past thing. Like some, mm-hmm. in some ways it's very futuristic, but yet it feels kind of like old and like, you know, faded in, in certain ways. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that's something why that, that record stuck with me in that way that it did. Yeah. Um, what made you choose this? You know, I, it was, <laughs> I mean, to be really honest, it was the BOC thing because I did Blue <laughs> Cult, a band that I'm very fond of last week. And, but then I just, once I, I, I was like, man, Boards of Canada, I haven't listened to that forever. And I, I just got really into it again. I was like, man, this was like, there was a certain period, maybe like six months where I was super into this record when it came out because my roommate had gotten it and, I don't know. I, it just, it sort of brought me back to a certain time and, and place kind of thing. And, uh, and it, I felt like it held up, you know, really well. And I mean, I, I hope you guys got something out of it. You know, I feel like mm-hmm. it, it, it's, it's absolutely still, nothing. Uh, <laughs> nothing <laughs> got nothing out of it. Yikes. It was a terrible drag and a waste of <laughs> it time. Is the last... I suggest deleting all of this. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, we could move on to questions. Is there any other songs, uh, Austin, that you wanted to touch on yeah no sure let's do it i i uh i'm happy i'll have to kind of lightning round them a, a tad i uh i have a i have a bit of a, a schedule conflict barreling towards us so no, oh, okay I, yeah I, yeah yeah let's um yeah let, you just let us know yeah we'll, no worries. We'll, we'll do your questions and and we'll, we'll i get completely through. forgot about them i was so entranced by my my by the the ephemerality of the moment and the wistfulness mm-hmm. of how something comes and is gone forever as whoa as just like podcasts podcasts come and go as narrated by <laughs> boards of canada exactly uh okay well then i will jump right into our community questions these questions came to us from folks who support us on patreon if you want us to answer your questions and hear your favorite songs find us at patreon.com slash minmax that's with two n's and you can also get access to the discord special call-in episodes bonus content and a behind the scenes look at all this stuff your dollars let us do our community song this week is thick as a brick by jethro tull suggested by tom blackburn and i think your dad is right tom they're pretty fucking cool uh, how's this for lightning round, Austin? We've got a short game that Tom Blackburn, one of our MinMax supporters, has for you. Uh, he says, if I can give you a word, can you name the instrumentation or arrangement that first comes to mind? Uh, for example, <laughs> if for example, if I said, quote unquote, psycho, you might say shrieking violins or building tension. Basically, it's free association, but for music. There are five terms. Are you ready? This is from a Patreon backer? This is from a Patreon backer. They are a wild bunch of folks. <laughs> That, this is a this is yeah I was gonna say this is a community member you deserve uh, <laughs> indeed that's, uh, that's, <laughs> thank uh, you Tom we we love all our Patreon people thank you for your support <laughs> yeah no that was meant as a praise I hope that didn't come across as like a weirdly backhanded uh, smack no you always seem so genuine yeah yeah it was definitely a like you know peas of peas of a pod kind of sentiment <laughs> all right uh, uh, all right go, hit me let's see what the hell term number one is melting plastic. Melting plastic. Interesting. Just free free association. It's like jazz. <laughs> well, I I'm 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 heavily brainwashed by what we're listening to because I, I started immediately hearing glitching speaking Ooh. voices. 
uh, okay. because I was picturing kind of a Terminator uh, melting in the in the in the, <laughs> oh, in the oh magma. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the T T one thousand. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, that's so that one's just a horrible cheat, though. Perfect, perfect. Uh, two mirrors. Mirrors, huh? Mm-hmm. I don't know why, but it. Uh, strings can play with mutes on, as as you're probably aware, where it kind of makes mm. the sound very glassy and very still, um, mm-hmm. and and all the kind of like vibrato and lushness that you think of when you think of like soaring emotional violins, all that goes away with with mutes, and they're very uh, it's glassy, which is I guess why I went straight there. Again, it's kind of Ooh. sort of obvious and non-emotional, sort of literal. <laughs> but there you yeah, go, I, it's muted I, muted I regret- strings. I regret to inform you, Austin, I think these might only be obvious to you, but I think it makes for <laughs> dynamite content, so I'm going to keep enough. going. Fair uh, number three, gross. Gross. Well, well, the most delicious gross thing that you can probably do is multiple oboes playing at the very bottom of their range, like around middle Ooh. C. Oh, man, it's and just got to sound like an it's open fa- window. It's fantastic, but it's it is vile and probably not legal everywhere. <laughs> Number four, cannonball. Cannonball. Well, I guess again, it's a cheat to go with like giant anthemic brass because of the fact that Tchaikovsky used uh, actual cannon fire in the eighteen twelve mm-hmm. overture. I'll I'll allow it. You know what, Austin? I'll allow it. Uh, Number five, whiskers. Whiskers, as in those so, on a cat. I was going to say, in honor of Tom and Jerry, I'll go with frantic solo piano. Ooh, I like that. That's not where I would have gone. I would have gone with like a brushed drum or something, but wow. You know, you have to have like, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah I like that shit. I love that <laughs> <Yeah>. shit. <laughs> the sound of like whiskers. chromatic scales just like yep. randomly. <laughs> well, that was fun. Thank you so much, Tom Blackburn, for that uh, suggestion, that fun game. I hope you do more of those for us, Tom. Um, Tanner Housington, or sorry, Hoisington says, Hey Austin, I must admit that I'm a bit of a noob when it comes to composers in either film or games, but I appreciate the craft of composing in both mediums. So that said, I understand your work to be heavy in strings and whimsy as a foundation, uh, while also being highly creative. I I guess this is Tanner's, uh, characterization. I I hope you don't take offense, uh, with a wide wide array of instruments. What, what, what right does a creator have to be offended at (laughs) someone's interpretation of their work? I want to, yeah. Of course not. As whimsical, yeah. Uh, that is the If they same got way the wrong feel- idea, sorry to interrupt <laughs> you, but if they got no. the so-called wrong idea from my work, that's on me and how I wrote it. That's not on them. Wow, wow. Really owning up to it. Uh, our So the comparison being made here is between your work and that of uh, Alexandre Desplat. Uh, and this, mm. uh, sorry, Tanner wants to know if you see any similarities between your, work, your bodies of work and your styles, uh, and if you have any particular favorite scores from Alexandre. I have many. He's, tr- he's, he's, well, he's interesting because sometimes I feel like I think to myself, I don't think he cared very much about that movie. Uh, Cause it feels <laughs> sort of like he's recycling his bag of tricks and he has a very specific bag of tricks that, that make it instantly identifiably him because it's sort of like this collection of gestures that he really loves. Um, and, but I love his bag of tricks. And when he's on, he's really on. Like I was just the other day Mm. talking about his score to the curious case of Benjamin Button, which to me is just the height. That thing we were talking about at the beginning of sort of simple elegance, that score Mm -hmm. is one of the heights of that, I think, in modern film scores. Um, And uh, it was a travesty for it to have lost 
the Oscar. He has won twice, though, so I, I don't feel too bad for him. Um, and funny when they say that my music is characterized by use of strings and whimsy because one of the scores that um, managed to get out into the world pretty well that I did was called The Banner Saga, which mm-hmm. is scored for wind ensemble. There's literally no strings. It's also oppressively heavy and dark. Um, and so <laughs> it it would hopefully be of interest. I would be very curious to hear. You said their name was Tanner. Tanner. Um, Tanner. I, I, if Tanner feels so compelled to go check out the Banner Saga, there's three of them. It's a trilogy. Um, they're all, you know, online, Spotify and whatever. Uh, and then come hunt me down on Twitter or something and report back his his comments. I would be very, very curious to know uh, the reaction because it's neither of those things. But I, I take no, I certainly take no offense. I would say that Desplop, there's a lot that I really love. He does have a gift of melody. And as you know, obviously I care a lot about melody. I try to write mm-hmm. good melodies of my own and he has written a lot of really great ones. I also like that he always tries to, there always appears to be an attempt at some kind of like shtick about a score. Like there's something that makes hmm. it novel and unique. There's some little, which is a th- that's a Jerry Goldsmith thing as well. That's, I was going to say, I, yeah, I love that. I, I admire that about his, his writing. Um, the one area where I'm decidedly not like him is that he for sure comes out of that minimalist Philip glass way of thinking. Mm. And while I enjoy listening to it in the case of his writing, I I'm not that way at all. I'm way too ADD for that shit. I can't handle it. I don't like listening to it. I don't write that way. I have to, I have to find if I'm, if I'm writing, if I'm working on a project where there's a scene or something where something like that is a really effective way to approach it, or I'm explicitly asked to do something in that vein, I have to find ways to kind of very subtly subvert it to my own satisfaction that they won't notice because Mm. I, I, I really don't like that. Uh, It's to me, it's so tedious and Desplat is capable of lapsing into that at his least inspired, but at his most inspired, he manages to transcend it without abandoning it in, nice. in, in ways that are fantastic. Uh, let's see. The next question is for both of you, but we'll have more for just Austin in a sec. Um, Michael Lynch uh, wants to know what's your favorite moment with music that you've experienced by yourself or with a small group. Uh, I'm assuming this refers to live music as Michael mentions a specific uh, secret show that he saw uh, 20 years ago of a band called Gasoline, where the uh, front man played his guitar with a child's toy laser gun. Um, so any <laughs> any any weird little one-off shows or street performances or anything that really, like, that stick in your mind? I'll let you start, Austin. I Oh, God, a bunch. But for whatever reason, the first one that came to mind was I, I had a friend who was visiting L.A. once and... I was driving around, kind of giving him a little driving tour of L.A. I don't think he'd ever been here before. And we, I, you know, he was also a composer. We went to school together. And so, you know, he, he's we we're I was trying to target music related sites. And so I said, OK, so we're going to, of course, swing by downtown and pass by the home of the L.A. Philharmonic, the Walt Disney Concert Hall, which is already just kind of this architectural landmark of L.A. anyway. And just mm-hmm. it's just beautiful to look at. And it's odd and interesting. And and uh, Frank Gehry uh, building. And so I, he, I said, let's get out of the car and, you know, wa- wander up and just take a look. And he said, you want to see if there's a concert? And it was because we were around that, that I think it was a Saturday, like mat or Sunday matinee ish time frame. So one of the very few times ever in my life, I've just walked up, seen what's playing. Turns out it's starting in 20 minutes and just bought a ticket spontaneously because nice. especially with orchestra concerts, you, you typically have to plan in advance, you know? 
and uh, and they were doing uh, a Bartok opera called Bluebeard's Castle, where that was the whole concert <laughs> because it's you know it's like an hour plus of music of this one piece. Mm-hmm. And because it was the not being done as an opera, it was being done as a concert piece with just singers at the front of the stage. They decided to try to simulate the idea of what it might look like as a traditional opera, which would have a set and costumes and all that. They just decided to try to evoke all of that through atmospheric lighting. And there's one moment where this story involves, you know, this character of Bluebeard opening up doors to reveal these different kind of darker elements of his castle and of his personality. And midway through, I think the fourth door, he opens it and it reveals the splendor of his kingdom. And it's this one big, dramatic, huge, glorious moment in the music and an otherwise very psychological, almost like what you would hear in a Hitchcock or, or a, or a um, um, Kubrick score, you know, the kinds of music mm. he would license for his movies. Most of the opera sounds like that. And then there's this one moment that just feels like, the glory of the heavens. And mm-hmm. and the way they did it was they have all these lights that are, and the lights were really low in the in the hall. And there's all these kind of moving shadows on the stage and all this stuff as it's all very creepy crawly, of course. And then for the moment where he flings open that door, all the lights turned and faced at the audience. And so it was like you squinted and covered your eyes as Whoa. these pipe organ and all this low brass do these, you know, huge kind of... of big like sort of liturgical kind of chords and it was even talking about it i get goosebumps it was so powerful and you were blind you were literally they blinded you and it was like man without a set yet somehow they have transformed me or transported me to a to another fucking universe it was so amazing man what a marriage of form and and art that that sounds incredible and yeah and working with their kind of like less is more thing, you know, they didn't have a lot of tools mm-hmm. in their, in their kit to play with. And they just <laughs> thought of a really clever way to do a lot with a little. And it, it was, it was absolute my buddy. Jeremy and I turned to look at each other and we're like, fuck that was we got <laughs> for a spontaneous wow. afternoon decision. This was yeah. like a lifetime memory. Wow. Don't skip it. Uh, Matt, what are yours? Man, uh, you know, I guess most of the shows I've probably been to in my life were small crowds, you know. Um, I just always kind of been involved in local music, which isn't mm-hmm. very popular and things like that. But I, this is a weird thing is it's like a band I don't eat, literally don't remember the, the name of. I was at the 7th Street Entry, which is a small room off of 1st Avenue in Minneapolis. They were opening for somebody I went to see and they, they were pretty good. They were like an in 90s, kind of like late 90s indie rock band and, and they were decent. But back in those days, people were so, you know, like, ironic asshole kind of stuff like <laughs> Freebird, yeah, yeah. Freebird. like that was a whole like people like all these assholes yeah. every fucking show thought they were so fucking hilarious and like they were like Freebird, and the guy's like stopped like the song he's like what he's like play Freebird, and he's like I, I still remember how he said he's like i am going to teach you to be careful what you wish for <laughs> and they fucking kicked in to Full on Freebird for like eight minutes, like all the fucking Amazing. guitar solos, all the raving up, you know, at the end, fucking seventies, fucking everything, like perfect, like perfect version of Freebird, and it was, I was just like, that is like so fucking badass that they bothered to like fucking learn that song, and it wasn't like a, a half ass cover either. It was like dead on fucking Freebird. I was like, be very careful. I, what I, you I wish for. to God I remember the name of that band because I was just like. I love that so much. They they literally stopped their own song in the middle and played Freebird for like eight minutes. I love those I moments. Always, 
I always remember that. I, they were just an opening band. I, I don't remember their name, sadly. But I um, once whoever, saw, whoever you are, that was amazing. I, I once saw Randy Newman live. It was just him at the piano, and he just walked up to the stage and goes, all right, what do you want to hear? And people just started yelling out songs. And I remember <laughs> someone yelled out, you know, whatever, political science. Probably not that one because that song's amazing. But he... Mm-hmm. He just started playing something, and then after a few seconds, goes, "Yeah, this one's shit." You know what? Give me another one, and just just stopped himself and asked for an asked for a different recommendation. And I always well, thought that was just so hilarious. It's so um, on brand for him too. I was gonna say a living king, that guy. Holy shit! Oh yeah. Uh, I was I was at I was at a punk show once here in Minneapolis where somebody said uh, play a Prince cover, and they're like, "There is no way in hell that we four like white guys from Canada are playing a Prince cover in Minneapolis. We're not doing that. You don't want that." Yeah. That was, that was good. That was <laughs> yeah, it was a good. It was a good choice. It happens um, too much in Minneapolis. Actually. Yeah, for real. Uh, Chris Prohaska has a question for Austin. He says, "I remember uh, you mentioning on Play, Watch, Listen that you had some issues with the Final Fantasy VII remake soundtrack. And uh, could you explain that? And uh, I, I guess maybe digging a little bit more into that into that opinion, if if there's more to say. <laughs> yeah, I. It's funny because I I definitely the, I had two issues. First off, you know it 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 was nominated and won nominated for and won soundtrack of the year or best score in a video game or whatever they call it at um jeff Keeley's the game awards and mm-hmm. i was <laughs> i like your well it's just i feel like yeah, it doesn't it's not clear what i'm talking about because of the I, I've, yeah <laughs> that that name is always i prefer the spike vgas if you're going for easy brit name recognition but um yeah. he, he he he's done he's done an impressive thing i i, I don't mean to sound like I'm shitting on him. It's not like he mm-hmm. handpicks the winners anyway. It's voted on by some mysterious cadre of mostly journalists, I think, but um the a score winning best score, which is effectively the same music but better produced from the from 20 years ago. I thought, well, you know, Star Wars was re-released with new special effects in 1997, and yet John Williams was not eligible for best score that year uh for a score he had written in 1977 or 76. Like, so to me, it was, I took, I took umbrage that particularly scores by friends and colleagues of mine, like Darren Korb with Hades and Mick Gordon with Doom Eternal and whatnot, would lose at the expense of a score that effectively has already had its day in the sun and is that, that makes total sense. widely considered a classic. So I, I was, I was a little miffed, but then on top of that, I was playing the game and I was like, <laughs> boy, this music has really taken away a lot from me here because it's just, it's like this blunt object where you know, they're like, okay, you know, we're we're gonna create music for this town. And first off, I have an issue with ex- sort of explicitly locational music in big RPGs anyway, because I I think that's not storytelling. It's basically it's basically saying, you know, like you know the smell of the air at that dock that you only hear if you go stand at this place. It's the musical equivalent of that. You will only huh. ever hear it if you go stand at that location. And I'm like, yeah. but where is the character at in their arc? Where is the story at in its narrative journey? I, I've, I've always bristled a bit at the idea that music only cares about where you are and big mm. scale RPGs fall into this all the time. And so on top of that, the music was just firing at 10 constantly to the point where I was like, I can't even fucking hear the di- If I didn't have subtitles on, I'd have no idea what they're <laughs> even talking about. Um, and it's selling me on this grand vision of adventure when all I'm doing is fighting a fucking cockroach. And so I just thought <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, 
It's not how I would do it. Now, here's the thing. If you go and just listen to the music on its own, it's pretty hard to take issue with it. It's really spectacular. It's great writing. And the other aspect that I didn't like is there's so much music in it and the production nature of it is all over the map. It Some, hmm. some is all done with fake orchestra and samples. Some of it is fake, you know, strings, but live oboe or whatever. And then some of it's like Abbey Road, full orchestra pre- recorded and produced to the nines. And that... Hmm that internal um, sort of schizophrenia really also pulled me out of trying to make my way through the game as well. So I I thought, you know, there's so much here that's so beautiful and so fantastic. And yet it's adding up to this chimera. That's like, kill me uh, that I was like, (laughs) it's not, it's not. Yeah. I wanted to love it because I have friends that think it's just like this gift from the heavens. And I thought, man, Mm -hmm. it's not for me. And I, and I love, I love passionately components of it. So there you go. My little Final for sure. Rant. I hate to, no, I hate to sort of call it there, but I really, unfortunately yeah, have to jump no, on a call. Hey. No, perfect. <clears throat> Absolutely. Austin, this was so much fun. Thank you so much for your time. And we really enjoyed the the conversation and just, chatting about music this is great insight into music it was really it was uh, absolutely really my pleasure as I, I i can't overstate how much i got out of the kind of soul searching exercise you subjected me to uh <laughs> it was it was it was really excellent and this format is awesome. just awesome I, re- I really enjoyed listening to a bunch of your other uh episodes so uh thanks awesome. thanks Thank for having me guys really means a awesome lot. well hopefully uh, we can do it again down the road you you know how to reach me my answer is yes excellent awesome. <laughs> all right Take care and and thanks so much. Absolutely. Take care, guys. I may make you feel that I can't make you think. Your sperm's in the gutter, your love's in the sink. So you ride yourselves over the fields and you make all your animal deals and your wise men don't know how it feels to be sick as a brick And castle virtues are all swept away In the tidal destruction, the moral malaise The elastic retreat rings the close of play As the last wave uncovers the new fangled way but your new shoes are worn up the heels And your suntan was rapidly peeled And your wise men don't know how it feels To be thick as a brick And the love that I feel so far away I'm a bad dream that I just had today And you shake your head You said it's a shame It's 
Spin me back down the years and the days of my youth Draw the lace and black curtains and shut out the whole truth Spin me down the long ages, let them sing the song 